It's time for Chicago's annual funny music convention, Fump Fest. This year, we're celebrating Dr. Demento's 50th anniversary with special guest, radio legend Dr. Demento, appearing live and in person. Dr. Demento will be presenting his Festival of Dementia, signing autographs, and hosting the 11th annual Logan Whitehurst Memorial Awards for Excellence in Comedy Music. Fump Fest is taking place August 20th through 22nd at the Western North Shore in Wheeling, Illinois, and will feature performances by Bill Larkin, Carla Albright, Steve Goody, Bad Beth and Beyond, The Gothsicles, Ross Child, The Great Luke Ski, Worm Quartet, Insane Ian, Nuclear Bubble Rat, Carrie Dalby, Ian Lockwood, and a special appearance by Sulu from The Dr. Demento Show, plus Demented Karaoke, Dumb Parody Ideas, The Fump Showcase, and more. Visit FumpFest.com to register and book your hotel room. That's F-U-M-P-F-E-S-T dot com. I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. Uh, I I just wanted to make a quick statement in case uh, it bleeds through on the audio, but today is the first day in weeks it hasn't been thunderstorming in southeast Georgia. <laughs> so all of the lawnmowers in the world are, <laughs> are out today. <laughs> so if you hear that old familiar drone on the audio, that's why... It's it's very noisy where I am today. Lawns, <sighs> uh. I hate them. Stop doing them. Plant moss instead. Or wildflowers. Or, you know, anything but lawns. Lawns are horrible and awful for the environment. Stop it. Alright, let's let's get down to business. Yeah, so- we got some Nazis to punch. Tracuna Macoides Tacorum Satis D. If you know what that means, you know what we're talking about. We are talking about the 1971 Disney musical Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And this has a really interesting story. So in the 1960s, while Disney was working with P.L. Travers on getting the rights to Mary Poppins, uh, the relationship was not good uh they made a whole movie about it you can watch it so Walt wanted a backup plan in case the deal fell through a travers and got the rights to a book called the magic bed knob by mary norton and it was pretty much very similar in plot to uh, Mary Poppins, you know, British woman with magical powers, couple of kids, go on a magical journey. It kind of works. And he probably would have made it work, but Mary Poppins was made and is considered a Disney classic. Fast forward a few years, and the songwriting duo, the Sherman Brothers, came to Walt and said, hey, you, you got this uh, magic bed knob, uh, book lying around uh let's uh, let's try to do something with it we got some leftover songs that never got used for mary poppins we can make something happen 
But Walt said no, as the magic bed knob was a little too close to Mary Poppins for him to do, to, to, to make that film. And Walt, at that time, was very anti-sequel. We talked about that before. Yeah. So, fast forward a few more years, Walt dies. Uh, Walt's death impacted the studio harshly. They needed a hit. And suddenly, Too Close to Mary Poppins doesn't sound so bad right now. And uh, they decided to go with the newly rechristened Bed Doms and Broomsticks. Now, a hodgepodge of two of Norton's books, The Magic, Med- the Magic Bed Knob and Bonfires and Broomsticks. To this day, both books are sold as a single book called Bed Knobs and Broomsticks because of the film. Bedknobs and Brewstem came out in 1971, the same year that Walt Disney World opened. And since Walt Disney World is celebrating their 50th anniversary this year, happy anniversary, Bedknobs and Broomsticks! Yay! Before this movie came out, had a little bit more problems. In that the original cut of this movie was two and a half hours long. Which for theaters, uh, especially as uh, Disney was very insistent on this movie debuting at Radio City Music Hall, it was a bit too long for Radio City Music Hall. They wanted the movie to be a bit shorter, so half an hour of this movie was cut. The theatrical cut of this movie is about two hours, so half an hour of the movie was cut. Uh, In 96, most of those lost cut scenes were reinserted back into the movie with all uh, all but one of the song. Uh, the song, Step in the Right Direction. The footage for that movie unfortunately could not be salvaged, but there is a reconstruction out there of uh, production photographs with the song to kind of show you what that scene would have been like. So also, there is also a third cut of this movie. When the original VHS of Bed Knobs and Broomstick came out, it was cut even further down to 90 minutes, cutting out a majority of the songs. So there are three different cuts of this movie. So from 96 to the early 2000s, if you got a copy of Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, you were getting this extended edition, this two and a half hour extended edition. Up until the Blu-ray of Bed Knobs and Broomsticks came out, to which they went back to the original theatrical cut, and all of the additional scenes were put as bonus scenes on the Blu-ray. The version that's on Disney Plus is the Blu-ray restoration, which is the theatrical cut, which is the version we're going to go with. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the, it's the one that we had access to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's also a, I hear, a German cut which completely removed the Nazi plot. Huh, how does that work? I don't know, because that's kind of the entire plot of the movie. I mean, that's her entire reason for becoming a witch. That's the entire third act. Yeah, and the entire third act. So, but, uh, that's, that's what I hear, is that there was at least at one point, uh, a special German cut that removed uh, all references to Nazis. There actually is a version of the Magic Bedknob that also cuts out all references to the Nazis. Which, again, how does that make sense? It's as a cornerstone of the movie. Yeah. 
I don't know. So anyway, when this movie came out, it was not the hit that they were expecting. They were expecting the next Mary Poppins, and it wasn't. But it did get a few nominations for awards, best visual effects, and the like. Also, uh, the song in the movie, The Age of Not Believing, was up for best original song at the Oscars. When you rush around in hopeless circles, searching everywhere for something true, you're at the age of not believing when all the make-believe is through. Losing to the theme from Shaft. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the cheeks? you damn right. As it should have. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, pretty much anything should lose to the theme from Shaft. Let's, let's be honest. Because that Shaft is a bad mother. Hey, shut your mouth. Let's talk about Shaft. Yeah. That song is, am, and was a banger. But it did it did win for visual effects as as I think it should have. I, I I'm not exactly sure what it was up against uh, that year, but uh, these these are pretty good effects. For 1971, yeah the the animation uh, was pretty good. The psychedelic effects of the transporting of the bed definitely on par with like uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, I mean, it definitely gives you a, hey, kids, you want to know what it's like to be dosed? Like, <laughs> it really has that that kind of like, uh-oh, somebody spiked my drink kind of feeling to it. You know, I'm going to say something about the music. Uh, I really kind of expected more from the music as this is a Sherman Brothers film. Mm-hmm. And Sherman Brothers are known for their earworms. The only one that really is an earworm is, for lack of a better term, Step in the Right Direction, which technically, lyrically, is not in the movie, but it's all throughout the score. After all, it's a step in the right direction. It's a step in the right direction after all. I couldn't, I heard this song, watching music, I know that song. I know that song, and there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day It's the same melody! Well, we've talked about that before, you know, with with other Disney songwriters. Yeah. How songwriters just tend to reuse phrases. Mm-hmm. Um, you find it a lot with John Williams and, and stuff like that as well. None of the ones, like... I I wasn't humming these songs after I watched the movie and all, but you watch Mary Poppins and you're humming those, those songs after you get, you know, you, you watch any of the other movies that the Sherman brothers have worked on and you're humming at least one song for at least a day afterwards. It feels, I, I hate making the comparisons to Mary Poppins because this movie doesn't deserve it, but there's so much musically that is just Mary Poppins. You have your 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 nonsense song, Substitutionary Locomotion, is supercalifragilistic. Yeah. Uh, Portobello Road is Chim Chim Cherry. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Age of Not Believing is Feed the Birds. Yeah, but it's... Oh, Feed the Birds is so much better. 
You, you um, kind of get what I'm getting with that? Yeah, but I, I agree with you, but this really feels like the back of the napkin songs. These do feel like these were the songs that got cut from Mary Poppins. One of them was. Beautiful Briny was supposed to be a Mary Poppins. Bobbing along, bobbing along on the bottom of the beautiful Briny Sea. Okay, I can really see that. And that's the song they used for the animated segment. And, you know, having seen Mary Poppins Returns, where they go into the bathtub and they go under, you could overlay that song over that scene. And it feels like a cut scene from the original Mary Poppins now. Can you One more Mary Poppins comparison as originally Disney wanted Julie Andrews to play Miss Price. Andrews originally declined the offer saying it was too similar to Mary Poppins. But after actually reading the script, she changed her mind and said she was in. After they had already offered the role to Angela Lansbury. I feel Angela Lansbury is the much better choice for this. And of course the other thing um, that we've got to do the Mary Poppins comparison is is uh let's move on to kind of the the actors we got to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Angela Tomlinson, yeah. Angela Lansbury, we've already mentioned, you know, takes over the part that they wanted Julie Andrews to play, but David Tomlinson is the the main uh male part in this. Professor Brown. Professor Brown, and he's played by David Tomlinson, who played Mr. Banks in Mary Poppins. And, of course, he he also had a a big Disney career uh, as well. Um, He's he's also in um, The Love Bug uh, as Peter Thorndike and all and he uh was inducted into the Disney Legends uh after his death uh 2002 I believe. Yeah, David Tomlinson going from playing Mr. Banks to a Burt style role. Yeah, I mean he is a uh a charlatan in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh he's a a con man who tricks Miss Price into taking his correspondence witchcraft course that he believes is a complete con uh, and accidentally works. We'll get to it. And the only other actor I think we can really talk about is Roddy McDowell as Mr. Jelk, the clergyman, who does not have a big role in the theatrical version of this movie, but in the extended version of this movie, it's an entire subplot as he is trying to hook up with Miss Price to get her property. Yeah. Um, he, but, but that it, it entire kind of sub- explains why he keeps getting his comeuppance in what little bit he remains in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he's treated rather harshly in the theatrical cut for no reason, but it, it makes sense in the extended cut 
but in I, a theatrical cut, he just kind of keeps getting crapped on for no real reason. I wish Disney Plus would put up the extended cut. I mean, it's probably not going to happen because it's not Blu-ray quality, but I kind of wish they would. Or, or at least... Or at least put those deleted scenes up on the extra section, which they're not in. The extra yeah. you get is a is, is a scene of uh, David Tomlinson recording Portobello Road when they were recording the movie. But uh, Roddy McDowell also a long history with with Disney, mm. um, and that darn cat as well, and uh, the black hole, and now an even longer history with Disney in the. Uh, the kind of uh, merger because he is uh, probably best known for being uh, Cornelius and Caesar in the Planet of the Apes film series, which is now uh, a Disney owned property. Yeah. Uh, now that uh, they've done the, the merger. On top of all of that, uh, this is getting a stage adaptation. Uh, yeah, in about yeah. a month from when we're recording this, really. So, yeah, apparently this was going to originally debut in 2019 in Chicago. But unfortunately, the production was canceled because the director died. So Disney kind of put it on the back burner and announced about a year ago in the middle of the pandemic that they were not going to give up this this stage adaptation of Ben Nums and Broomsticks, but instead it was going to debut in the UK and go directly to touring. So this is not going to go to Broadway, at least not yet. There's a chance it could, but as of this recording, there is currently no plans to bring Ben Nums and Broomsticks to Broadway. So yeah, August of 2021, Ben Nums and Broomsticks, the musical, will debut in the UK. It will feature uh, most of the songs from the film and a few new songs. The uh, the commercial, the advertisements for this is featuring the song "Age of Not Believing," so I assume that's going to be in uh, in the in the in the musical. Though I'm very curious how they are going to do the locomotion scene on stage. Yeah, I mean, this is one that really seems more suited for. Film? I mean, they even have... I mean, maybe they'll do it with projections or something, but that's a lot less impressive than seeing actual, you know... Like I said, I mean, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang Broadway Music, they actually have the car flying. And and if you've ever seen Mary Popper's musical, Mary is actually flying over the crowd. I've seen that. So maybe we could have something... The idea of potentially mispriced on a broom flying over the crowd over the audience as the knights are fighting the nazis make it it would make an amazing view well yes but you know knowing something about how you do these things in theater flying a person or a singular object is a lot easier to do in a theater than you know, the the interesting thing in the film is supposed to be that you have these suits of armor that are individual pieces with nothing inside of them. Mm-hmm. So you can have things like the head moving separately from the chest piece, moving separately from 
you know, the greaves and all that kind of stuff, which is difficult enough to do against a green screen and everything. And that's an interesting enough effect in the 70s. It would be easier to do now with CGI and stuff. Mm. But how do you do that on a live theater being able to get not an entirely 360 view, but, you know, a a pretty wide angle view from the audience um, would be the the difficult thing. Um, And and making it believable and doing it night after night. Yeah. um, When you're, when you're flying that many moving pieces against a backdrop that you can see through you know, and having them move in concert with each other. I mean, you know, bravo to you if you can do that. Um, So there's there's a lot of wires to get tangled, and there's a lot of, you know, places for the lights to hit a wire and give away the the illusion, you know. Maybe they'll just be a person in like a black leotard with the with the armor on top of them, and there'd be like a black screen. Or, or I, I mean, that's the that's the Muppet way of doing things, mm-hmm. um, you know. Um, and that's the uh, uh, Adams Family, the musical. Yeah, we saw that. Uh, when we saw that, that's how they achieved that illusion for uh, a lot of their things um and that worked really well but again you're only working with one or two moving pieces there um the more you do that the more it breaks the illusion um if, if you live in the uk and this is coming <laughs> to your area yeah uh, please drop us a line and tell us how it is we, i'm we generally curious how know. this is going yeah. to translate to the stage um uh, please film it and put it up on YouTube so we can see it. We're desperate. Uh, no, which lady fights Nazi slime tutorial dot mov on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's let's actually wa- talk about what's actually in this movie. The the intro credit scene. I actually do like this parchment look. It's actually um once again um Kiki is a medieval reenactor. If you had not forgotten um. Uh, it's supposed to be kind of the Bayou Tapestry, which I love. Um, I'm a little annoyed they didn't draw it like Bayou Tapestry Stitch. Uh, I mean, this itself has kind of become a meme over the last 10 years on the internet. The Bayou Tapestry, yeah. Um, things drawn to look like the Bayou Tapestry has indeed become a meme. Uh, mostly helped by... The SCA. I'm I'm not gonna lie. We share those memes all the time. Um, Bayou Tapestry Stitch is a thing I learned how to do. Not well, mind you. Um, but it is a, a, an embroidery style that I've taken classes on. Um, so I'm a little annoyed they didn't go the the extra mile to uh, draw the actual stitches in. But they did the outline pretty well. So, eh, bravo. Uh, it does give away the entire movie, though. It kind of does, but I kind of like that. I kind of like when movies do that for people who are paying attention, because it does give, one, it gives the people who are paying attention a little bit of a treat, and two, it makes it more interesting when you watch it a second time. 
it's very weird seeing uh, Nazi sh- soldiers done this style, though, with guns. It is. I've seen weirder things done in that style. I'm not going to lie. But I I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, when I watched it, I said to the friend I was watching it with, I was like, oh, cool. It's it's uh, Bayou Tapestry uh, opening. It's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, bravo. I wish they had gone the the one extra step of actually making it look like the stitching on the inside, but it's still points. Um, so I liked the opening. Good, good job. And uh, we start England, 1940. And we, it, the entire, this little, this little town outside of London preparing for attack. The signs are getting painted over. No one's trusting anybody. Uh, do you know where this place is at? Well, I'm not supposed to tell you because you might be a Nazi. Well, I'm not a Nazi. That's what a Nazi would say. Can't fault his logic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, good good for you, snarky old British man. <laughs> um, But yeah, it's during the Blitz and they've evacuated all the children to the country. Um, I'm assuming because of what happens in the movie, the three children we follow have been orphaned. That is actually in the extended cut. Yeah, they don't actually say it in the theatrical film, but the the three children we follow, Charlie, Carrie, and Paul, they show up, you know, most of the children who were sent out did have families to go back to. They were only evacuated for their safety and then sent back to their families after the evacuation. Um, but these children, you know, spoilers for the end of the movie, they just kind of stay there. You know? <laughs> so ho- hopefully that, that there's there's no home for them to go back to. Yeah. Um, so it does seem like uh, I guess they were orphaned since they're just staying either that or they've just stolen these children away from their family. Yeah. And we get uh, the old home guard. These bunch of old soldiers marching around like they're going to take on the Nazis. I guess this is very kind of dad's army. Yeah. In a, in a way. Um, these are the men who are left. These are the World War One vets who are too old to be serving in the army proper. Um, and they've been left to defend, you know, home soil in case of an invasion they're left with their their hunting rifles their pitchforks you know random farm equipment whatever they've got um and most of them are wearing whatever of their world war one kit still fits yeah um so it's it's obvious that they're very ill-prepared should the Nazis show up. But they're going to fight anyway. But they're going to fight anyway. Um, and we see the last three children left in the, um, in the little placement center as Miss Price, Miss Eglantine Price, comes up. in on a motorcycle. Badass. That is badass. Belching sulfur smoke, <laughs> giant yellow plumes of sulfur smoke, which I love. Angela Lansbury riding a motorcycle. 
that is awesome. She looks awesome from the get go. Like you don't, she doesn't even have to say a word. You don't even have to see that it's Angela Lansbury. It's just immediately you want to be this woman's best friend. Yeah. Um, and she cannot stand children, so also a point in her favor. Good job for you, Miss Price. She lives and, alone in a giant house on the edge of nowhere, and she's got a broomstick in the mail. Everything about her reads, witchy woman on the edge of the town. Why did this woman not get her letter? <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't. She's too good for that school. That's what it is. <laughs> but yeah, that. She's, she doesn't volunteer. She's assigned these children because she lives alone. There's no one else in her house, and she has the room, which she protests to. Like, I, I don't want any kids in my house. Well, there's nowhere else for these kids to go, and I need to put these kids somewhere. And the government says so, which actually was the thing at the time. You yeah. you had to. Um. And so she's like, all right, fine, but you're going to find somebody to take them ASAP. And then she takes the children back home and they're like, we're going to run away to London immediately. And she's like, yeah, I don't really care. Just uh, do it where you don't bother me, (laughs) which I'm like, you go, Miss Price. (laughs) And she's straight up strict. It's like there's no fried food in my house. There's no... Uh, you know, n- no funny business of any kind in her in her house, and she's not going to tolerate these kids' attitude. I think it's very important to to note that she's not mean to the children. No, definitely. It's, it sounds like we're saying she's being mean to the children, but she's not. She's just saying like she's like, uh, I will feed you the exact same food I feed myself. You will be given the exact same accommodation I give myself. You will be clean. You will be, you know. And these kids complain about washing up for dinner. These kids are old enough to be over that. Yeah. Um. And I think the girl is kind of fine with her. I think the young boy is kind of fine with her. But the older one, Charlie, is very much a. He's kind of a kind of a grifter in training i think this the this kid wants to be artful dodger so bad he really does like he really wants to be um some kind of like you know london street tough or something but he doesn't quite have the brain for it probably why he gravitates to mr brown the way he does yeah he really does take to Mr. Brown in that way when they meet. But uh, she's very perfunctory. You know, she's very, you you can live here. Um, just stay out of my way. Stay out of my way. I won't mess in your business. You don't mess in mine. You're free to be in the house. Just don't mess anything up. No special you know. treatment, pretty much. Yeah. Um, she's not going to treat these kids like they're hers because they're not hers. It's just roommates, for lack of a better term. She sort of treats them like very small adults. But she is much more focused on the broomstick she got in the mail, which it turns out is uh, the next part of her witchcraft correspondence course. Yeah, she doesn't go to the School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. 
she has a correspondence course in witchcraft and wizardry. So yes, she gets the the broom and the letter from Professor Brown saying that she has now made the rank of apprentice witch. Good for her. And as a as as an apprentice witch, she now gets the broom and the spell of levitation. At first, she tries to ride the broom side saddle like a lady, but unfortunately, it there's not enough support. Like you can ride a horse side saddle because the horses are kind of wide. You can you can have some support. Well, no, you can ride a horse side saddle because there's a very special saddle made for riding. That's why it's called side saddle. You try to sit on a horse astride and, you know, I mean, you try to sit on a horse like that, you're going to fall off without a special side saddle. That's why you have to ride a horse astride. <laughs> but yeah, the, the broom doesn't have such a, sa- such a saddle, so she kind of has to ride it. The typical witch, you know, between the legs thing. She says the magic spell. Uh, it's, a, it's a very funny scene where the broom is just flying out of her hands and everything. She eventually gets the hang of it and starts flying around uh, her little cottage. But the kids who are escaping to go back to London see her flying around and put two and two together that she is a witch. Because witches fly on brooms, you see. Of course they do. Yeah. And And the oldest one is like, yeah, we might as well stay here and, um, you know, blackmail her. They straight up say, hey, we saw you last night. You're a witch. And if you don't want us to tell everybody that you're a witch, uh, you're going to give us special treatment. You're going to give us some fried food, some sausages, some chicken. And, and money. And lots money. And yeah. Lots of money. And Ms. I love what Miss Price does to all this blackmail. She, she, turns, she turns him into a toad. Or at well, least she, she tries, tries to. to. She tries to turn him into a toad. <laughs> And then turns him into a rabbit. Which is much better than a toad. And there's this funny scene where little rabbit boy is getting chased by the cat. But because because uh, because Miss Price is only an apprentice witch, her spells do not last very long. As uh, Charlie starts running away at, in, in his rabbit form up the stairs, he immediately turns back into a person... I still think the cat should have attacked him as a person because the cat's still made out of razors, and those hurt people too. Cats aren't afraid. Cats, are, cats do whatever they want. But yeah. The, but the lesson is learned, as it were. Yeah. Plus, I like that kind of everybody is on Miss Price's side. Like his his siblings are very much like, yeah, we weren't with you on the blackmail thing, so um, you you looked better as a rabbit. Got what you deserved, really. <laughs> I really Even, liked Paul, the the youngest, just being like, I always wanted a rabbit. You, you were better as a rabbit. <laughs> Go back to being a rabbit. He wants a rabbit. Yeah. So, you know, she, Miss Price, you know, now that the jig is up, tells him, tells her about her magic and gives them a gift. A teleportation spell. But they need something that they can turn. She, she, she suggests a ring or a watch, which the, none of the kids have. But Paul has snagged the bed knob off the upstairs bed. And good enough. And she puts the spell on. And 
All you have to do is turn the bed knob, say where you want to go, and you will go there. And the kids automatically say, oh, can we go back to London? Yeah, you can do whatever you want. But the snag is because Paul was the one that presented the bed knob, the magic only works for him. Which is good because he's the one with the most sense and the kindest. Mm. I think Charlie, if Charlie had gotten a hold of it, he would have just been like, bye suckers. And that would have been the last we see of Charlie or the bed or the magic or the. Like he would have just left his two siblings and Miss Price. And like... Yeah. Charlie is, is becoming quite a young Richard. Yeah, movie over. That that would have been the end of the movie. The snag here is that as this is happening, a letter arrives to Miss Price saying that the correspondence course has been discontinued due to the war. And Miss Price is very upset about this because there was one more spell left to to send her. That would be the spell of substitutionary locomotion. And she needs that spell if she wants to become a full witch. And, and I think I think it's important right now that we talk about her motivation for becoming a witch. Because right. that is very important. All right, let's go with that. She wants to stop the Nazis with magic. Yeah, she only became a witch to help the war effort. Um... While there was, you know, everybody thinks like, well, the 1940s, only men could go to war. That's not entirely true. Okay. Um, There were women involved in the war effort, um, more so in the UK than there was in the US. But even in the US at the time, women were involved in the war effort. Um, In the UK, there were more women involved, even in the front lines, Um, not as much as the men, granted. Mm -hmm. Um, But women had a a larger role in the the war effort um, at the time, Um, especially during the time of the Blitz, you know, women who really wanted to participate in the war effort especially if you were single if you didn't have a family to take care of um they would snatch you up they were getting desperate at the time in england um so there were all sorts of things you could do um if she wanted to become a spy if uh she wanted to work in code cracking if she wanted to you know um, especially in the, the medical fields and things like that. They were taking a lot of women. Angela um, Lansbury super spy sounds awesome. That would have been amazing. Um, so it wasn't like there there weren't ways for women to help, but this is a very interesting thing of a woman wanting to help and seeing a witch correspondence course and thinking, I'll magic the Nazis away. I'm going to use black magic to fight fascism. I mean, do it. I'm for Nazi punching in whatever form you want to try. Go go for it. So, I, I, I think that's our favorite occupation, <laughs> right, is, is Nazi punching. But, um, yeah, so that that is her entire 
reasoning for going into witchcraft, which I find fascinating. She wants to defend her country. She wants to defend innocent people. And she's going to use it through magic. That is the best reason for becoming a witch I have ever heard. Ever. Go go Miss Price. Yeah. This is the the greatest character in movie history. Go Miss Price. So, yeah, she... And since uh, Professor Brown has shut down the, the, the school, she is going to go to London personally to get the spell personally from Professor Brown. And there's only one way they can get there in a speedy amount of time, which is the bed knob. What's this got to do with my knob? The most funniest unintentional line in a Disney movie. Yep. It, it would have seemed that somebody would have thought to add bed to that but okay adult humor in a disney movie way earlier than we would expect it yeah so anyway they're setting up the bed for their big trip to london and uh charlie despite not long ago being turned into a rabbit and seeing a woman fly on a broom says that magic isn't real which leads us to the song, The Age of Not Believing, that there's a, there is an age where a person stops believing in magic and uh, childish things, as it were. It's a nice song. And apparently that age is like 12 or 11 or something. I mean, how old were you when you stopped believing in Santa Claus? I was never allowed to believe in Santa Claus. Ah, so the answer is never. Uh, okay. Remember, <laughs> Kiki had a weird childhood. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the song "Age of Not Believing" is a, is is a very beautiful song. It's kind of odd the way they filmed this scene. It's just her and the kids making a bed while she's singing about this time in a person's life where they just stop believing in magic. Yeah. It's weird. So, but what he does believe in is that cats are scary, and the thought of being left alone in the house with the cat is, scares him onto the bed as it's teleporting away. For 1971, the effects aren't so bad, and it's very trippy. Yeah, it is very psychedelic. I, I, I would, if you're one of those photosensitive people, uh, I would probably not recommend this movie. Yeah, I'm I'm not exactly sure what it would do to a photosensitive uh, epileptic, but uh, eh, I don't know. Be warned anyway. Especially the actual teleportation effect, not the the them flying over London or whatever, but the the flashing lights of of the bed disappearing. You know. Yeah. Anyway, they end up in London after this very beautiful sequence of them flying. And they meet Professor Brown, who is a street magician, selling knickknacks and the like to the whoever passes him by. And when we say street magician, it's not like, you know, David Blaine or something. It is like I bought a kit for a 10-year-old, and these are the cheapest, like, you know, baby's first magic kit. Like, they're really cheesy. And he's not very good at it. Yeah, it's really bad. 
Like, I will put this solid object through this glass, and he breaks the glass. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, yeah. So anyway, he he tries to con the kids, to, trying to sell them a, a, a bird call that doesn't work. But ultimately, Miss Price confronts Mr. Brown, telling him what's going on. And um, at first, it's kind of weird because he doesn't believe that the magic works. And then she turns him into a rabbit. And suddenly, oh, wow, these nonsense words I found in a book are actual magic spells. And then he wants to start a magic act with her. I think we're skipping. That, that's kind of skipping ahead here. No, I think he proposes that to her right away, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. He, he kind of needs it because she can actually do magic, but he's a, a showman, a performer. Yeah, uh, it's like Penn and Teller. Teller yeah. can actually do magic. Penn can talk. So, so they use the bed and teleport to Mr. Brown's house, which isn't actually his house. It's a house that he's squatting in because the entire neighborhood's been evacuated because there's a bomb in the middle of this town. Yeah, it's an unexploded bomb that they haven't been able to defuse yet. So, uh, And it's a really rich neighborhood. So he's just been squatting in this really rich neighborhood that apparently belongs to an actual wizard. That's the thing that's never explained. Because yeah, I, they they have the book of Astaroth, mm-hmm. which is the actual magic book, but they also have a children's book about Nabumbu. Oh uh, yes, they find the, the the nursery, and Paul finds this kid book about this magical place called the Isle of Nabumbu, where animals walk and talk. Yeah, like like people. Yeah. Um, which is apparently. Yeah, we got to explain Astaroth real quick. Astaroth was apparently a real wizard with real magic that wrote his spellbook down, which is where uh, Professor Brown got all of the spells from um, that he sold to Miss Price. Um, And Astaroth at one point decided to give human traits to a bunch of animals. But the animals didn't like it because who would want to be people? Seriously, that's an awful thing to do to an animal. What is wrong with you, Astaroth? And they rebelled. And killed Astaroth. And killed Astaroth and stole his magical talisman, which has the words for the spell that Miss Price is looking for. And they got on a ship and they went to an island called Nabumbu. And nobody has ever seen them again. Um, and so that's kind of the thing. And this one house happens to have the spell book of Astaroth and a children's book written about the island of Nabumbu. A so lot of coincidence, this, don't you think? Yeah. So does this house, like, belong to, like... Astaroth's descendants or something? Possible. But I'm we're, we're never told. What we find out is that this she, uh, 
what we find out is that Professor Brown did not find the book in that house. He found it on Portobello Road, which is where we go next, which is this big street market where they sell anything and everything. Had a fight with another buyer and the book tore in half. Which is the real reason why Professor Brown shut down the school, because the final spell is not in that half of the book. So they, they all go to Portobello Road to find the other half of the book. And we get this, you know, I'm all for show-stopping musical numbers, but this one goes on way too long. Yeah, this is a really pointless number. And it's even longer in the extended cut. Oh my goodness, that's a crime. Again, I'm I'm all for showstoppers, but this one takes a good chunk of the movie. It's like 10 minutes of this movie. It's just this one song and dance number. And it's not good. It's not a good song. I mean, I, I love the Sherman Brothers, but this is not one of their best. It's it's really boring. And yeah. the and the dance number is kind of bad and all the little all the little, you know, silly things that the kids are doing and, you know, the the stuff they find in the in the marketplace and, you know, the, the little stuff they get up to. And it's not great. It's a really it grinds the movie to a halt and you just want to fast forward through it. So that's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go straight to the next scene, which is they find an old book collector which apparently is the same book collector that Professor Brown. Well, a, a a hired goon finds them actually at knife point and takes them to the old book collector. Because he is the one that has the other half of the book. Yeah. So he, like Miss Price, wants the other half of the book because he also believes the spell for substitutionary locomotion is in that half of the book. But it's also not there. In fact, they actually read both halves of the book together, and it says uh, the spell is actually on the talisman of Azeroth, and they just show a picture of the talisman without the actual words. Yeah, Way to go, the, Azeroth. The, the star of Azeroth, which was a medallion he always he always wore. Yeah, this uh, is this is where we get the info dump about Azeroth, uh, Azeroth, and the Boom Boo. Yeah, and apparently they took the medallion with them when they killed him. And they took it to Nabumbu. And the old guy says he has looked for Nabumbu for years and years and years, but he never found it, so it doesn't exist. And Paul says, sure, it exists. And they go, shut up, kid. And he's like, no, but it really exists. And they're like, shut up, kid. And he's like, no, but really it does. And that, like, nobody, this whole movie is, if you'd have listened to Paul, this movie would have been so much shorter. We'll get to that. So, uh, so yeah. And the old, since Miss Price is now useless to him, the old book collector orders his thug to kill them all. Luckily, they were able to, uh, the kids and Miss Price and Mr. Brown were able to get into bed and get out of there. And teleport themselves to the land of Nabubu. Yeah. And they crash into the water. But fortunately, they can breathe. Because, of course, they can. It's a Disney movie. Yeah. 
And yeah, the, the 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 bed is perfectly fine. If you ever submerged the bed or ever got a bed wet, you know there's some damage caused there. But yeah, they're able to breathe underwater. The bed's fine. Amazingly enough, also the book doesn't get damaged. The book of Nabubu does not get damaged in the water. Yeah, this is the children's book that Paul had. It's how he knows Nabubu exists. He read all about it in the children's book. And he's the one that takes them to Nabubu with the bed. This begins our extended animation sequence. They saw what happened to Mary Poppins, and we're going to turn it to 11. Yeah, unfortunately, I think this is probably still in the, the Xerox. Xerox. Yep, yep. Yeah, because it really, it really looks like the Xerox uh, era. A lot of this Naboombo scene would get re... I, I want to say a lot of it gets reused for, like, Robin Hood, especially the, the, the soccer game. A lot of the uh, King of Nabumbu feels really familiar, the way he moves and stuff. So I think a lot of this is reused animation, to be honest. So, yeah, they uh, have their, their their big underwater dance sequence in the Isle of Nabumbu. It's nice. It's okay. It's no, it's a lovely day with Mary. Yeah, but that really feels like what they're going for. Mm-hmm. If you want to do comparisons to Mary Poppins, this is where most of it comes from, I think. The rest of the movie doesn't feel Mary Poppins-ish to me, but this really does. So, literally, the bed is caught on a fishing line and dragged onto shore by this bear, who is not voiced by Phil Harris. Yeah, but he but he does feel very blue if blue got hit in the head with something heavy. So the bear tells that tells uh, our main characters that people are not allowed on the Isle of the Boom Boom. There's even a sign that says no peopling allowed. I want that sign for my house. I want that on my front door. I, I, I want that so bad. <laughs> no was, peopling allowed, huh? Yeah, no peopling allowed. I want that really big on my front door. I want it on every door of my house. I, w- I want it on a t-shirt. <laughs> I want it as a bumper sticker on my car. <laughs> I want it on a hat. I just, I, I want I want that everywhere I go. And they probably would have gotten thrown off the island by the bear if Paul hadn't looked, brought up the book again saying, hey, in the book it says anyone can have an audience with the king if they wish for it. Says, well, if it's in the book, we gotta, you know, we gotta let you do it. And as they're doing this, uh, the Isle of Nabumbu is preparing for their annual soccer match. Yes, soccer. Despite everyone in this movie being British, they're calling uh, it soccer. I'm gonna point out because I'm a linguist. Uh, prior to World War II, uh, they kind of used the words soccer and football interchangeably. And then before, uh, because of the American influx and everything, um, they kind of made a, uh, a big a distinction in calling it uh, football only after that. So Professor Brown is able to have an audience with King Lion here. Actually, his name is King Leonidas. This is Sparta. Yep. So, this 
Leonidas, the boom boom. <laughs> King Leonidas is the only character from this movie that was ever shown in the Disney parks. Weird. I guess because it's already a cartoon character, you can make a nice mascot costume out of that and not have someone walking around as Miss Price or something. Yeah. Professor Brown and King Leonidas have come to an agreement that they will be allowed to stay on the island for as long as they want, provided that Professor Brown acts as referee in the upcoming soccer match because no one wants to be the referee. And Professor Brown kind of BSs his way into it. Hey, I used to play football or in my college days, uh, I could be a ref. Actually, all the names he lists are professional uh, football clubs in England. Mm. So he's he's not just BSing. He's BSing like it's basically like being like, yeah, I played football for the New England Patriots and I played football for the. Yeah, I mean, it's like that kind of level of BS. But since no one on the boo boo knows what any of that is. Yeah, oh, it's, that sounds- yeah it's that kind of level of BS. So, yeah, we have. Leonidas' team, the Dirty Yellows, against the True Blues. I thought it would make a better idea if it was Predators versus Prey, but we have a cheetah on the blue side. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, but the, the Blues... I like the cheetah, though, because the cheetah keeps running around causing fire with how fast he is. Yeah. The animation is kind of jumping in that it's very obvious changing from a real soccer ball to an animated soccer ball. Yeah, the animation in this is, I think, because of the Xerox and the trying to put together the uh, live action and animated parts, uh, it's not that great. It's not as smooth as the Mary Poppins. I mean, I hate to keep bringing up Mary Poppins, but in this case, it's apt. It's better than the animation live action hybrids of, like, Peach Dragon. Yeah, it is better than that. That is true. It feels like the further we go from Mary Poppins is the worse the the live action animation hybrids get until we get to Roger Rabbit. That's true. Yeah. So the entire thing is that he's he and he only he only becomes a referee. Professor Brown only becomes a referee because it allows him to be close enough to King Leonidas so he can grab the medallion with the magic words on it. And every time he does, uh, a group of team members run him over. And there is a nice little running gag with the paramedic vultures. I got to admit, that actually is a funny uh, funny gag. The paramedic vultures were probably the best part of the bit. That and the the cheetah that keeps leaving uh, fire (laughs) trails behind him as he runs. The vultures are so disappointing when no one dies in this match. Yeah, they keep hoping that they can take somebody off the field. Eventually, the match ends. This is like um, 20 minutes. This is a full-on soccer match with, with with cartoons. Yeah, this is this is a whole act of the movie, and it drags on. Some of the slapstick is funny. This would have worked as a standalone cartoon, and the fact that a lot of the advertisements, even the 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 picture for this very movie on Disney Plus. Features the animated characters. The poster for this movie when it came out featured the animated characters, and they're they're not in the movie that long, but they're but their part just drags. Just they're an- not in the movie that long, but they're in the movie too long. Eventually, Leonidas just proclaims himself the victor after they score one goal. Yeah, 
Um, and Brown goes up to uh, to congratulate him and ends up swapping his referee whistle with the medallion. And he's like, all right, let's get out of here. And they leave. And Leonidas very quickly realizes that his medallion's gone. And he's like, let's run. You know. Yeah. Uh, but and they get back to the bed and they are able to make it back. Before, Not before Miss Price turns King Leonidas into a rabbit. But only part of him. He still has the lion tail. And she's like, oh, I can never get that spell quite right. Throughout this entire movie, Professor Brown is very sexist towards Miss Price, saying that she's going to be his his little side girl, uh, his assistant in a skimpy outfit. Yeah, we actually skipped over the song he sings to her about that. Yeah, he sings a song about her, how she's going to be his his assistant in a skimpy outfit. He has his poster already made. Yeah, and also her first name is Eglantine, which, no offense if that's your first name, but it's not a a very um, musical name. Eglantine. Egg. That yeah. really doesn't work as a song. It doesn't really work as a song, and they made that the song. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, so throughout the entire movie, Professor Brown is kind of being a little bit sexist to Miss to Miss Price saying that, you know, a woman can't be trusted with this, woman can't do this. To the point where he is holding the medallion himself, saying that women always lose things, so he has to keep it on his person. And when he tries to retrieve the medallion, it's gone. Now we see a little bit of magic dust as he tries to open his little compartment with the medallion inside it. So it is it is implied that the medallion cannot be taken from the boom boom. But he and so it's in kind. But the way the the line is read, it's implied that he just lost it. Yeah, it's kind of left open of whether or not he lost it or whether or not it disintegrated because of moving from a magical place to a non-magical place. Miss Price says we've gone from one world to another, so implying that Nabumbu isn't in the real world. Yeah. Uh, anyway. But guess what? That entire sequence is rule null and void because the medallion is actually in Paul's book. Including the magical words they needed to read off of it. So yeah, that entire animated sequence is rule pointless. And if they'd have just listened to Paul to begin with, they wouldn't have even had to go to Nabumbu. So they see the medallion with the magic words. Chakuna McCoydes Chakorum Sadis D, which is the substitutionary locomotion spell, and they turn it into a song, and it works. As they are, uh, she tries, she works small, working on Mr. Brown's shoes first, but she said the spell so many times in the course of the song that now everything in her house is now alive. Clothes and stuff like that are walking and dancing and Floating Pretty around and yeah. floating around and causing a nuisance. There's a scene where her stockings are dancing, her dress is dancing, and yeah. But unfortunately, Miss Price does not know the counter spell. To which Professor Brown says, I have a cancellation spell that I've sent you. If you can find it, it should be fine. But 
she's never able to find that cancellation spell. But, yeah, we never find out what happens after that, because we just skip to, like, this dinner scene. Where... It was probably in the deleted scenes. Probably. Like everything else in the movie. Probably. So we get... Uh... We get the lady from earlier that put that put the kids with Miss Price, saying that she found a new home for them. Miss Price says uh, that won't be necessary. She's kind of warmed up to the kids, so she, they they can stay with her. Paul, being Paul, says, "Well, we're gonna stay here forever because we got a new mom and dad now," implying that Professor Brown is gonna be their dad. And, and Mr. Price- Brown's like, uh. No, actually, I was about to get out of here. I'm leaving on the next train. Uh, bye. Gotta get back to London, yep. Yeah. Fear of commitment. So, it, but he, he also implies that this is very sudden. Again, they've only known each other at most 24 hours. Yeah, they really haven't been together that long. Um, it seems like longer because they've been traveling around, but they've been traveling by magic bed, so it really hasn't been that long. He's going on the train back, so he goes and uh, falls asleep on the bench uh, on the train platform waiting for the train, and that's when the Nazis finally arrive. The entire reason we watched this movie... The final half an hour of of this movie is the entire reason we wanted to watch this movie. Yeah. Finally. Yeah, the Nazis have come. They're attacking. uh, They... End up at Miss Price's house. They take it over. They say that this is not an invasion. This is just an exercise to show that we can. Yeah. Um, at, the, at the same time, Professor Brown is uh, hating himself. As he, he should. He says, you had a great, you, you know, you had a house. You had potentially a family. You had a good life right in front of you, and you're walking away because you're a coward. Which he is. And as this is happening, he gets this dreamy vision of Miss Price singing a song in this magician's assistant uniform. Gimpy outfit. Uh, Yeah, if you ever want to see Angela Lansbury in a skimpy magician's outfit, there you go. And I mean, who wouldn't? It's young Angela Lansbury. Yeah. Come on. She was a looker back then. She was. As he kind of comes out of the dream, he notices, like, oh, yeah, there's a couple of Nazis cutting the phone lines at the top of the telephone pole. So and he gets he gets out of there as quickly as he can. But uh, he, does get a, he does get a good shot at one of the Nazis. Actually, he throws a punch that takes out two Nazis with one punch. So come on. We, we got to give props to that. Good job. Well, well done, Professor Brown. So, yeah, he tries to get back to Miss Price's house, but the Nazis have already taken it over and have taken Miss Price and the kids to the museum that we saw the kids at at the beginning of the movie. But he does a really smart thing, and he sneaks into her workshop and finds the turn you into a rabbit spell, which he uses on himself. He even says, for once in your life, believe in something. So it implies that the reason the magic works for Miss Price is because she believes in magic. She believes, at least she believes that this magic works. 
I don't know if it's in one of the deleted scenes, but it would have been nice to say that you have to believe in magic for magic to work. Yeah, maybe. I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know what the difference is, but uh, yeah, it, it takes him a little bit, but he, he looks in a mirror and he points at himself and eventually he turns himself into a rabbit just before the Nazis catch him. But he eventually gets there, gets to the museum, finds Miss Price, winks at Miss Price to indicate that that's him. And she she says, because because once again, it's Paul that realizes what's going on. He says it's it's Professor Brown. And she says, well, if you are Professor Brown, get off of my lap. And he does. And she goes, it is Professor Brown. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's silly Disney stuff, but it, it works in the scene. Yeah. And as, I, soon as, he, he, like as soon as he as soon as he gets off, he turns back to normal and they have to figure out a plan to get the Nazis out of their town. To which they decide, let's use the substitutionary locomotion spell. And we have, we're in a museum full of armor. We can make this happen. At first, Miss Price is against it because she can't control the spell. But they don't really have much of a choice. It's either use the spell or the Nazis take over the, take over the town. And she does the spell. And at first, it looks like nothing happens. But then... The drums start playing themselves. The flags start waving upon themselves. Uh, the flags start waving by themselves. The suits start coming to life and start marching. And in a very, I don't know if it's creepy or what, the armor starts chanting the spell. Yeah, it's a really neat scene, and I like the little touches, like when the the visors click down uh, on the the helmets. Um, I like that, like, dust falls off them and stuff because they've been in the museum so long. It's the little things like that I really like. I like the little touches. Um, And I like that there's armor from all different kinds of uh regiments i like that there's different armors from different time periods uh throughout the british history you know and and i'm the type of geek that would notice you know little differences and stuff like that even some scottish because we get some bagpipes yeah we do get the the bagpipers playing on the the hills and stuff like that we get different types of heraldry and and everything and then we get the big climax of these suits of armor these the best way to describe this movie woman uses black magic to fight nazis no i i think this is definitely white magic that this is magic definitely for good any sort of magic used to fight a nazi is definitely magic on the side of good Necromancy almost. I, I want to say necromancy ma- used to fight a Nazi is magic on the side of good. Anything <laughs> used to fight a Nazi is is on the side of good. So yeah, we get this big battle between the suits of armor and this Nazi regiment as Miss Price flying on her broom with the with the Union Jack on it is ordering the troops. This scene is awesome. Yeah, this this scene, this final act is reason enough for this movie to exist. Uh, I am glad this movie exists because this whole final section of film is awesome. Um, 
this is exactly what I want in a movie. I want this movie to be remade and this be the entire movie. Yeah. Um, everything before this in the movie, I do not care about. I'm going to be honest. Did not care about everything in this movie up until this point. And the fight itself is actually pretty cool in that the Germans are shooting the, the armors and all their, and every piece of armor, they just take the one piece of armor off, unload the bullets, put it back on, and they're back to fighting. Or, uh... They'll knock the helmet off, and then the, the suit alarm will come back, put the helmet back on, and keep going. One gets their one one piece of armor gets their leg knocked off, and the the suit of armor hopping on the one leg just knocks the Nazi with the with the leg that they shot off. Yeah, or or the Nazi picks up the the chest piece off, <laughs> and then turns around to like motion to his comrade like. Hey, look! It's there's nothing inside of this, and then the legs kick him in the butt, you know, like, um, or you know, the the helmets get knocked off one group of of uh, armor, and the armor just keeps marching forward, you know. It's like we don't need heads to fight you. It's fine. We'll just keep marching, you know. We're already dead. <laughs> Yeah, it's like we don't we don't need it. That's that's fine. We still got weapons, you know. Um, I love Angela Lansbury flying around with the anti-aircraft uh, strafing going on around her. Her she flying around on the broomstick, and you can see the anti-aircraft flying. You know the the anti-aircraft artillery going off around her. You, I mean, what a she, badass shot! You know the the yeah. green anti aircraft uh, artillery going off, and her just flying the broom around, dodging it. It's just so cool. This is just the best. Yeah. This is just absolutely everything I want in every movie I ever watch. <laughs> and yep, it's a and yeah, they win. The suits of armor and the witch is. Enough to knock the Nazis back. Yeah, and the Nazis but, are just terrified. There um, is a witch in the sky using magic against them. Of course they're going to get out of there. Um, my favorite thing is the um, the big executioner armor with the executioner axe. And it comes down and it chops the, anti-artillery, uh, the anti-aircraft gun. In, in half, and then it raises the the axe again to kill the Nazis, and the Nazis just run away, and then it raises the axe again and starts going after the commander, and the commander's like, nope! Um, and yeah, they, they win, but not before the Nazis use a bomb to blow up Miss Price's uh, workshop. Yeah, they don't take out her entire house, but they do take out the workshop she was using to do her magic from. Which is enough to cancel out all of the spells. Don't know how that works. Because Miss Price immediately falls out of the sky, the suits of armor... Well, she was over the workshop, so she got caught in the blast. But the suits of armor immediately deflate. I don't know if that's a result of the workshop exploding, or because Miss Price was blown out of the sky. I probably think probably the latter. I, I think it probably was because she got injured mm-hmm. that she lost control of the spell. Mm-hmm. As this is happening, the um, 
the old guard, here's what's going on. Run to the run to the the location where they're hearing the fighting. Sees the Nazis running off and thinks, "Hey, we got the, we got them into the Nazis. We scared them off." Well, they fire a few shots at the retreating Nazis, thinking that they're actually coming onshore instead of running offshore. So they're going to take credit for the win. So they take credit for the win. But Professor Brown, you know, run. They run up and find Miss Price, and she's. She's a little banged up, but she's fine. Um, but she realizes that without her workshop, she's not going to be able to be a witch anymore. Because um, yeah, that had all her spells and all her her stuff. I am a little sad that she gives up on her witch career. Because the movie does make it seem like she's like, oh, I have discovered the joys of motherhood. That's all I need. Which is exactly what she didn't want at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Uh, And it seems a little too tropey. Like, now that she's discovered what being a woman is about. And you know how much I hate that. (laughs) I mean, how, you yourself, how many times have you been told, oh, you won't know how much you, you'll love kids until you have one of your own? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, if I had a nickel, I'd be, you know, beating Jeff Bezos into space. So um, the. Uh, I'm a little I'm, I, I, I'm a, I, li- I dislike that a little bit, you know. I mean, imagine if a whole movie about just Miss Price using magic during the entirety of World War II. Yeah, I I want that movie. I want five of that movie. I want a whole series of that. I want an HBO series of that movie. Well, I guess I'd want a Disney Plus version. I don't know if they still own the the rights to to that book series. Who knows? <laughs> Um, they, you know, to, to wrap up the, the rest of the plot line, uh, Mr. Brown decides that he should probably be a man and go to war. Um, yep. in, in this case, I'm okay with it cause it's fighting Nazis. So yes, Mr. Brown, be a man and go fight some Nazis. Yep. And uh, he's going to get the, uh, the old guard being his entourage as he's going to the train to, uh, go to war. And the children uh, stay with Miss Price uh, as they uh, as they had already decided um, they would. Um, and Paul reveals that uh, not all of the magic is lost. He still has the bed knob, so they can still have adventures now and then. Yeah, leading off for a sequel that will never happen. At least and not with that cast. So that is bed knobs and broomsticks. Was this a first watch for you, or had you seen it? I know I knew of the movie, but I've never I don't remember seeing the movie the whole way through. I think I saw maybe the animated sequence on the Disney Channel doing those uh, co- uh, collection shows where they show all the cartoons. But I don't remember seeing this whole movie. I had never seen it because, you know, when I was doing Disney watch throughs, you know, back in the video store days when I would just go on a binge, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I'd always see the clamshell in the Disney section 
And it always had the, you know, I liked Angela Lansbury, but it had the dumbest name. Bedknobs and Broomsticks does not sound like a film I want to watch. And also, you're right, the poster is just them on a bed surrounded by animated nonsense. It's just them on a bed, you know, with animated animals. There is absolutely nothing about a witch fights Nazis. If this had been marketed as Angela Lansbury is a witch that fights Nazis, I would have immediately bought this movie as a kid. I would have fast forwarded past 90% of this movie, but the last act of this movie would have been my favorite thing as a child. The point here is this is a witch who fights Nazis. You are focused on the wrong part of this movie. This isn't about a witch who goes to a place filled with animals. This isn't about let's go on a hunt to find. This isn't about we've got a magic bed that flies somewhere. None of that matters. This is about we got a witch that fights Nazis. You have focused on the wrong part of this story. If they ever found a way to remake this movie, don't make it a musical. Make it The Witch Who Fought Nazis. I mean, if they're making this into a stage musical, they must still have the rights. Well, yeah. So it's possible. Like I said, let's do Disney Plus series of a witch that fights Nazis. Yeah, I mean, turn her into the secret, you know... I mean, she doesn't even have to work for the government. She could just be a witch that wants to fight Nazis. I don't need the children. I don't need Professor Brown. I don't need a bed knob. I don't need a broomstick, although the broomstick's kind of cool. I just need Miss Price, the Nazi fighting witch. Because Miss Price is awesome. The witchcraft is awesome. She was awesome the minute we saw her riding the motorcycle. Yeah, the motorcycle's awesome. Keep the motorcycle. Put more of the motorcycle in. (laughs) Motorcycles and Broomsticks, starring Miss Price, the Nazi fighting witch. Okay, so, you know, does the movie have the ha-ha pun intended magic? The last act does. I mean, Miss Price is awesome. Uh, The little kid Paul, awesome. That motorcycle, awesome. Punching Nazis, awesome. So, like, maybe 20% of this movie, magic. Uh, 80% of this movie, pointless, get rid of it. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree, agree with you. Like, This movie is way too long to get... It takes way too long to get to the point of what this movie is supposed to be about. And most of this movie... You can cut most of the movie out of the, out of it and miss nothing because one third of this movie ends up being pointless. Yeah, a full third of this movie is absolutely pointless. They didn't need to go to Portobello Road. They didn't need to go to the Boom Boo. Just look at the kids' book and everything is there. The kids' book that they found by coincidence. Yeah, a third of this movie is kind of eh. I mean, it's cute. Angela Lansbury is always good. David Tomlinson is, eh. I feel like this kind of, 
I'm going to tell you something. I've always hated Mr. Banks. Mm. Like, with a deep loathing. Deep loathing. So this kind of, he's not as awful in this movie. He's not great, but he's not as awful. So, eh. Two-thirds of the kids are, well, one of the kid, deep loathing, again. The girl is kind of just there. Neither like her nor hate her. She just exists. The youngest kid, awesome. Awesome. But, like, yeah, it's kind of a movie that exists in thirds. One-third awful, one-third eh, one-third awesome. Yeah. The third that is awesome is super-duper awesome. Yeah, but it's not enough for the full movie to say magic or not, you know. I'm going to say a no because two-thirds of this movie just drag on way too long. And the third that's actually awesome, it just not there's not enough of it. Okay, I'm going to say magic, but only because the third that is awesome is Nazi Punch and Awesome. That's what tips it for me. Mm. If it wasn't that, if it wasn't for the Nazi punching, like if it was just kind of like awesome, but it's Nazi punching awesome, dude. And Nazi he, punching is my favorite thing in the entire world. Like I've said when we watched Captain America, you put bread nubs and broomsticks, Captain America, and the Rocketeer together, and you got a good night of Nazi punching movies. Maybe throw an Indiana Jones for good measure. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say magic, but only because the awesome third has Nazi punching. And that tips the scale. Pretty hardcore. Uh, I guess agree to disagree on this one then. Yeah. But, so yeah, I'm just gonna, it's not enough. I mean, it's that third is awesome, and I'll, wa- I'll rewatch that final third, but that's about it. Nazi punching. <laughs> Nazi punching. Go punch a a Nazi, everybody. So, as this episode is being released, the Olympics are starting! So, uh, we're going to do some Olympic style. Uh, There's really only one movie that I know of that Disney owns that has uh, something to do with the Olympics. So, uh, next week we're going to do Cool Runnings. Cool Runnings! Yes, that's the Winter Olympics. Uh, I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. It's our show. We'll do what we want. So, yeah. So, we'll watch... We couldn't find an Olympic movie that also had Nazi punching. We're sorry. (laughs) If you know of an Olympic movie that has Nazi punching, I don't care if Disney owns it or not. You tell me about that. (laughs) So, yeah. So, that's our thoughts on uh, Bend Ups and Broomsticks. Come back next week for Cool Runnings. And uh, we'll talk to you all then. Punch a Nazi. Bye. Bye. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.